Well, we're in the second uh, chapter, in the second sermon of our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, which we started last week, and we've been calling Faith in a Time or in an Age of Uncertainty. We've been calling it that because Luke's great theme is certainty, confidence, which we saw in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, as he writes this orderly account that we may have certainty of the things which we have been taught. And today in chapter 2, we're going to be thinking about the whole of chapter 2, even though we've just had the reading on um, the kind of key parts of it. We're going to be thinking about how the birth of Jesus can give us certainty. Now, Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan was one of the leading intellectuals um, in America in the 20th century, and he was reflecting as a historian on the life of Jesus Christ, and he wrote these words. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of supermagnet, to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? That's quite a claim when you think about it. He's basically saying that whatever your personal opinion, Jesus Christ is the dominant figure of history pervading all aspects of history, particularly in Western culture. And look, Scripture would go on from that, not only to say that Jesus Christ is the most significant person of all history, but actually Jesus is the most significant person for every individual personally. That is, that the fundamental question, as Scripture puts it, that we all have to make is what we make of Jesus Christ. In other words, um, you know, the Battle of Hastings is significant for British history, but it might not mean a lot to us personally. But don't think of Jesus like that. Don't think of him as just some abstract person or event who's had sweeping influence over history. Also think of him as being key to your life. Because as we're going to see in this passage, Scripture would go on to say that common things like anxiety or fear or a sense of lack of joy and dryness in your life ultimately find their resolution when you come to realize who Jesus Christ is and joy comes forth and peace comes forth. So in other words, Jesus is not only significant to history, I put it to you and I want to show you this morning why he's so significant to you personally, and that's whether you have never encountered him before or whether you've been a Christian for many, many years. It's the same question we all need to make. What do we make of Jesus Christ? Who is he to you? To look at that as we go through this passage, the way that Luke has structured it is very clever. So he's taken the words, I think, of the angel to the shepherds in verse 10. Just look down if you've got your Bibles open. And he's made these, these words from the angel, the kind of key words that explain what is going on in this whole chapter. So chapter 2, verse 10, the angel said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And I think the passage breaks down into those kind of three key elements that we have in there. First of all, we're going to look at what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord. Then we're going to consider what it means that He's the Savior. And then we're going to consider our response, which is there in the kind of core middle part of the passage, as we see how we respond with great joy for all people to those two truths, that He's the Messiah and that He's the Savior. So let's look first of all at Jesus being the Messiah, the Lord, in verses 1 to 7. Now, just a bit of a a recap. We, We looked last week and we said that Luke, in verses 1 to 4 of his gospel, sets out his agenda for not only this book, 
but also for his second volume, which is the book of Acts. He's writing to give us certainty. And we said that Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 work together as a kind of a unit. Um, So chapter 1 is all about the promise of Jesus' birth. Chapter 2 is about the reality of Jesus' birth. And you can see that Luke intends it to be a unit because it starts in the temple in chapter 1. It ends in the temple at the end of chapter 2. And one of the other things to, to notice is the way that as Luke writes his material, he focuses, and this is a particular thing we'll see time and time again in Luke, he focuses on what people say, on their speeches. Sometimes when we can read a historical account or when we can read the Gospels, we can tend to think that there's the action and there's the bit that, that people say. But I want you to get this. In Luke's Gospel, the speeches... The things that people say, that is the action. Luke focuses on the word because certainty comes from believing the words taught to us about Jesus Christ. So the word drives the agenda. The word is the action. It's not, you know, kind of peripheral to the action. So last week we saw how it was the words of Mary with the Magnificat and Zechariah with the Benedictus that really were the action that explained what was going on. Well, this week we have a no less famous speech by Simeon, often known as the Nunc Dimittis. And we get some key words from Anna as she reflects as well. So notice two speeches last week, two slightly more brief speeches this week, both explaining what's going on, both driving forward the action. Well, look, so much by way of context. Let's look now at Jesus being the Messiah. Luke wants us to know with historic certainty that Jesus is the Messiah. And so do you see how he carefully records key details? Verse 1 of chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. So he places it in space, time, and history. And we know from history that Caesar Augustus reigned from 27 BC to AD 14. So this is no myth. This is no generalization. This is something we can place in space, time, and history. Jesus' birth happened under the reign of Caesar Augustus. More than that, it was under the governing of Quirinius, verse 2. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And we know that that stacks up with history. This was the time Quirinius was governor of Syria as well. And he's keen to locate it in place as well. So everyone had to go to their own town to register, verse 3. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth to Bethlehem. In other words, space time, history, place. This is no lie. This is no myth. This is no uh, Chinese whispers. I mean, look, kids get this, don't they, even at an early age. You want to make up a lie. You want to get away with it. What's the golden rule of making up the lie? This is not advice, by the way. This isn't your pastor telling you how to lie. This is just deconstructing how it works. Keep it general. You know, generalizations. Don't make it verifiable. Don't give names and dates and history and places because you can check it up. And this gospel, as we said last week, was in wide circulation in mid-AD 60. So people could check this. Caesar Augustus, was he the ruler then? Quirinius, was he the governor? Did the census take place? Was it true that they left Nazareth to Bethlehem? That's a big journey. Were they really there? It's verifiable because Luke wants us to give us historic certainty. Not only historic certainty, though biblical certainty. Do you remember last week that we looked that Luke investigated, not as an eyewitness himself, but as a careful scribe, the eyewitnesses, and he described them as servants of the word. In other words, they weren't just eyewitnesses. They were also keen to narrate what had happened in the line of biblical history, in line of the biblical prophecies. And so it is that he makes much of it, 
and the birth of Jesus Christ taking place in Bethlehem because 500 years before, Micah chapter 5 verse 2, he had prophesied that the Messiah, God's anointed king, would be born in Bethlehem. And so you have to give an account, if they normally resided in Nazareth, how was it that Mary and Joseph actually gave birth to Jesus, God's anointed king, in Bethlehem, and it was because of the census. As people returned to their hometowns, so they moved for many, many days to relocate themselves in Bethlehem, and so fulfilled the prophecy. Fulfilled the prophecy of 500 years of biblical witness that Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And finally, notice that more than just historic certainty, more than just biblical certainty, one of the things Luke is doing here is he is contrasting two kings. In the first century, the title for Caesar was Lord. Do you notice what the baby is, um, is spoken about by the angels? He will be the Messiah, the Lord. Everyone gets what's going on. That is a political statement. It's a challenge to the decree of Caesar Augustus, who claims to be Lord. In other words, Luke is saying, you're not Lord. No, no, the real Lord is being born in Bethlehem. He's the one who's in control. And there's a, a curious irony here, right? That Caesar Augustus is the one doing everything. He's the one, you know, kind of moving people around throughout the Middle East in order to be back in their hometowns for the census. But as he does that, he actually shows that he's not really in control that he's not really the Lord, that the Lord is the one who by the sovereignty of God has just been born a helpless baby in the town of David, the great king in the Old Testament, Bethlehem. A new Lord has been born, one who is already ruling even when he's a baby. That's real power. So he is Messiah, the Lord. And history will, of course, go on to show that Caesar Augustus might have looked mighty then, but he's just a footnote to history. I doubt you could tell me much afterwards unless you've done a degree in history or something. And yet Jesus is far from a footnote of history. He is the great luminous figure of history, as Albert Einstein called him. He is Messiah, the Lord. Let's look secondly then at he is a savior. And for this, we go to the end part of the passage, verses 22 to 52. He's not just Messiah, He's also the Savior. The angels say, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. And then that is picked up by Simeon in these glorious words of the Nunc Dimittis, which have echoed down the halls of history. And just look at what Simeon says. Here is an elderly man waiting in the temple courts. And finally, he gets to see a baby. Now, we had happy news last week. We heard of the um, birth of uh, Jessica. Um, to Mark and Joe. We've got more happy news this week as Deanna and Jose have had the birth of their baby, Joseph as well. So we've got a few babies in the church family at the moment. We call it our organic growth strategy here at church. Um, and when you see a baby, there's right celebration. But I don't think anyone says this, no matter how beautiful the baby of those babies, and I don't mean to offend, but I'm just, no one says, I can die now. My life is complete because I've seen this baby. Isn't that astonishing? That is what Simeon says. Sovereign Lord, verse 29, you can dismiss your servant in peace. I can die in peace. My life has been worthwhile. Why? Verse 30, for my eyes have seen a baby. Not quite. No, my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, this baby is the salvation of the whole world. 
Look how he describes it, verse 31. You've prepared this salvation for all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory, the light of your people Israel. In other words, my life now makes sense. And he just sees the infant. He doesn't even see what Jesus goes on to achieve. He says, just a moment to be with this baby. I can die in peace. Isn't that astonishing? And it's because he grasps the nature of this salvation. Notice a few things. First of all, verse 32, it's a universal salvation. It's for all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that is the ethne or the nations, and the glory of your people Israel. This is no locally based salvation for a few people. This is not religion just for those who happen to be born ethnically Jews. No, no, no. Notice the order. A light for revelation to the nations. This is a light that will burst onto the scene of the whole world and also for Jews, Jew and Gentile, male or female, slave or free, whatever your ethnic or religious background or sociodemographic background, whatever happens in your life, wherever you've come from, whether you are no faith or any faith or some faith or the Christian faith, it matters not, he says. This is for you. This is universal. And therefore, it's no surprise today that the Christian church is the most diverse and most geographically dispersed people group across the face of this earth, because this is for all people. My friends, I don't know where you're coming from this morning. Please don't think Christianity is only for you if you're from a religious background. I wasn't. I came from no particular religious background, came to faith age 22. Don't think Christianity is only for you if you were born in the West. Christianity didn't start in the West. And it's not growing the most in the West anymore. It's growing the rest of the world. Could Christianity be for you? A universal salvation. And then notice, second, the extent of this salvation. Do you see how Simeon uses this word, a light for revelation? Luke carefully weaves this together because at the end of chapter one in Zechariah's song, we, we hear more about that light. Verse 77 to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. In other words, this picture of light is a, a metaphor about the nature, the, the extent, the depth, the transforming power of this salvation and it's a salvation, verse 77 of chapter 1, that is about the forgiveness of sins. That is, it's about an internal renewal wrought in the heart of every human being. You know this. I mean, one of the most painful things about lockdown was we were shut away with ourselves. And so little surprise when we do that, that we're suddenly confronted between the gap, between the real and the ideal in our lives, high ideals, longing to be better people, painful fallen realities that we can't govern ourselves well, our relationships are often fractured, we live in a world that's fractured. That's sin, our moral failure before a perfect and holy God. It's the gap between the real and the ideal in your life. It's the way that you don't want God in your life and you push him to the periphery of your life. That's sin, but the salvation is forgiveness from that. In other words, an internal renewal, all that being wiped away, all that being dealt with but not only an internal renewal. Notice he says, verse 78 of chapter one, because the tender mercy of our God, what a phrase, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness 
and in the shadow of death. Do you remember early on in the pandemic when we started getting those daily reports of the death rates? That was awful, wasn't it? Death and more death and more death. And no one can deny now that we live in the land of a shadow of death. And some of us are still dealing with that shadow now, the shadow it's put on our families, the person who's not there with us anymore. But the salvation that Jesus Christ is bringing will roll back that shadow the way that the sunrise chases away the darkness of the night, to a land that will no longer be dark, to a land that will no longer have despair and disease and death and despondency, none of the deeds of life, because light will dawn. And when Jesus comes back, he will not only fully realize the salvation in your life of internal renewal, but this world will be made new. Everything good about this world, nothing bad, all of the disease and death and despair and despondency taken away. He will make everything new. It's a powerful image, isn't it? The image of a new dawn. doesn't matter wherever you are. If you get the chance to see the dawn coming in, if you're ever up early enough, there's something refreshing about it. It's worthwhile just doing it every now and then. I've spent a fair bit of time in Africa, particularly in Uganda, and the, the sunrise there is something else. I think it's because of the, the change from the real darkness when there's no light pollution to real light. And as you look to the horizon, that moment when the sun bursts above the horizon and the, the shafts of light pierce the darkness, and the land is suddenly bathed for a moment in the beauty of that first light. And it's not just the beauty of it, but there's something hugely evocative about the new dawn, right? For that moment, when we sit there and we gaze on the new dawn, it's as like the world is suddenly full of possibility again. It's new. Everywhere the light touches is new, and it, it seems untarnished, unspoiled, just for a moment. But then, of course, the day progresses, and you hear the familiar sounds of the world we live in. A baby cries. An argument breaks out. A siren wails, and suddenly reality hits, and you realize it's not a new world. It was a beautiful moment, but we have to get back to life. What this image is saying to us is, what would it be like? Actually, what will it be like when there's a day when that dawn rises, and there's no sirens, there's no children crying, there's no arguments, there's no sin, the world is truly made new. When the hopes that you grasp in that moment when the light first touches the land are actually realized. When you look to one another and you can't quite believe it as your pupils dilate and you say, it's made new, I'm made new. What would it be like to wake up and not feel that internal battle that you want to be better, but you can't quite realize it because you're just, you can just be comfortable with who you are. You just are good now. You are better because you've been renewed. What would be like when you don't need to fear things being taken away? No disease, no death. Everything's been chased away by the light because the Son of Glory has risen on the world. He's made all things new. Oh, you say that's just a hope, that's just a dream. No, my friends. Simeon says, in the baby that hope becomes reality. No wonder he could say, I can die in peace. Because he knows that as he shuts his eyes, one day he will awake again, and the Son of Glory will rise on that new world, and he'll be made whole, and the world will be made whole, and there'll be nothing bad ever again. That's the salvation. The salvation to his people Israel. 
But more than that, this passage gives us a powerful hint of the immense cost Jesus will have to bear to bring this about. Look at what Simeon says in verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, after these wonderful words of the Nunc Dimittis, these words do bring you back down to earth. He says to his mother, this child is destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Simeon has prophetic insight here, and he's drawing on the Old Testament. Isaiah, for example, who prophesied in Isaiah 8 verse 14, that the Messiah would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the house of Israel. Many shall stumble over it and be broken. Simeon is hopeful. He's looking forward to the, the salvation of the whole world, but he's realistic what it costs to bring about salvation. But friends, we know this. Any salvation, mini salvation in this world always has a heavy cost for it. Think of Wilberforce, his campaign for the abolition of slavery. Huge immers- emotional personal, relational cost on him as he was rejected by society, establishment, friends, family, for doing the right thing. Think of the suffragette movement. Hundreds, if not thousands, of women imprisoned to get the rights which we now rightly take for granted to bring about salvation in that area. And we know this, that the greater the salvation, the greater the cost. Well, do you think it would be costless for Jesus Christ to bring about salvation to our hearts and to this world? No, because the salvation is the greatest salvation this world has ever known. The cost is the greatest cost that could ever be paid. And so as he came, though he was infinitely good and perfectly loving, people didn't want him. His words were too good and too true, and so people rejected him. People stumbled over his light because they have darkness. We have darkness in our hearts. And people said, no, 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 until we were banging in the nails on the cross, rejecting him, saying, we don't want you. We don't want that salvation. But here's the glory. As he was rejected, he was paving the way for you and I to be accepted. As the darkness supernaturally was, was suddenly descended on the land for three hours, it was in that moment that Jesus was making it possible for light to dawn on a new age. Because as he was rejected on the cross by us, he was also being rejected by his Father in heaven for all the things we do wrong, for the darkness in our hearts, for the sin, and all the consequences that that brings, death and disease in a fallen world. He took it all. He absorbed it so that one day, if we trust in him, we will be able to stand there forgiven, cleansed, free, and the Son of glory will rise on a new world. That's the salvation Jesus accomplished. And Simeon knows a little bit of it as he prophesies to Mary to prepare her for what will happen, that a sword will pierce her own soul too as she sees the sadness of her son rejected. But through it, the world will be able to be accepted. Well, as I close, third and final point, a bit more briefly, how do we respond? Verses 8 to 21, The angels show us how to respond. Great joy for all people. In verse 10, the angel announces that the good news of Jesus' birth will bring about great joy for all people. And notice the angel doesn't just talk about this joy. The angels allow the shepherds for a moment to experience this joy. They sing. It's a heavenly choir singing. Now, I don't know what your image of a heavenly choir is, 
But have you ever been to a kind of a music concert or maybe to a choral recital, maybe like Handel's Messiah, if that's your thing, or whatever, where the music soars and for that moment you're just so caught up in the joy. Friends, if that is human music, what do you think the music of heaven could do to you? These shepherds, they're not overly expressive people, right? These are rough, tough men who spend their days chasing off wolves and bears and sleeping out at night. And don't think that's all kind of nice and comfortable and the grass. I mean, you know, last time I went camping, I had a bad back for a week, right? These are tough men. They're the ones celebrating with the angels because it's great joy. You know, you want to experience that joy, and I mean experience it, not just say to yourself, I should be joyful, grit my teeth and say, I'm joyful when you're not really. You want to experience it? You need to realize more and more that Jesus is your Messiah and Jesus is your Savior. Or let me put it in the negative, two ways that our joy is deprived of us, two vacuums that suck out joy from our life. First of all, fear and anxiety, and secondly, self-sufficiency. Let's close by applying this. First of all, fear and anxiety. Did you notice how the angels say all the time whenever they show up, don't be afraid? Why do they say that? Well, partly because you'd be petrified by an angel, right? But also because when heaven confronts earth, suddenly there's a sense of, oh no, we're not the people we should be, so fear kicks in. Anxiety kicks in. But they haven't come to bring fear and anxiety, they've come to liberate us from fear and anxiety. And we get that the more we realize that Jesus is Messiah and Lord. You know, if even as a baby he's in control of history, don't you think he's in control of your life? I don't know what you're fearful of or anxious at the moment. Maybe as we emerge out of lockdown, you're thinking there's just money problems, relational difficulties, personal problems to deal with. There could be so many reasons you could be fearful and anxious at the moment. You know, Jesus says... Cast all your burdens on me. In other words, stop trying to carry the fear and the anxieties yourself. You, you can't. They weigh you down. They're too much for you. You say, well, who can carry them? He can. He can. He's big enough and strong enough. Anxiety is taken away by you saying, I take these things off my shoulders that are bending me over double, and I give them to Jesus. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In other words, give your burdens to me. It's the heart-level move of saying, I'm worried about this. I don't know what to do about this. I can't hold this anymore. It's crushing me. He says, give it to me. Have you done that? Given your anxieties over to him? To the extent that you do that, you know what you experience? Liberation and a sense of joy. He's saying to you, my friend, I've got this. Just give it to me. We'll walk it out together. I'm Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the Lord. I can take it. You can't. Give it to me. And secondly of all, Jesus is our Savior. You want to experience joy renounce self-sufficiency. So much of our lives are about us saying, I've got this, I'm okay, I can do this. Salvation needs to come back, I'll do it. Internal renewal in my heart needs to make place. I need to get closer to the ideal, the real, I'll do that. I can do that. Here's the punchline, my friends. You can't. You can't do it. You can try all you like. Philosophers, religious people down the ages, they've tried. They've not done it. No one's done it. So Jesus says, let me do it for you. I will renew your heart. I will wash you clean. 
I will pay for your sin. Don't try and pay for yourself. Don't try and self-atone. Don't seek to be self-sufficient. It will vacuum and suck out your joy because you'll constantly feel like there's a standard and you're striving to get to that standard and you never make it. And the more you allow yourself to realize that, the more crushed you feel and your religious life becomes dry and dull and dutiful and never doing enough and God becomes like a divine headmaster who says, must try harder, have another go. That's not the God of the heaven and earth. He says, I've done it all for you. I've washed you clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. Come to him. Give me your sin. Realize the salvation I've done. Know the simple truth of a conscience washed clean and your head hits the pillow at night and you feel like I am free. I'm forgiven. I'm not perfect, but he's changing me. I've given it to him. And you know what? In that moment, you get a glimpse of the angels singing of joy. Good news, great joy. Well, in the light of all that, let's pray that we'd experience that, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has come. And that as he's come, he's come in space, time, and history. This is certainty, Luke writes about, but also he's come as Messiah and Lord. He's come as our Savior. He's come that the light of a new age might break in on our hearts and on this new world. And therefore, wherever we're coming from this morning, help us to grasp that a little bit more. And as we do so, might we experience in the power of your Spirit something of the joy that the angels sing about and that the shepherds join in with as they worship Jesus Christ. May that be our experience too, today and throughout the rest of this week. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.